Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Hey, to each and every one of you out there, we want to say thanks for joining us here. Season two of Faith in Your Recovery. This is episode 56. And as we've already said, welcome to the battle. We get the struggle, the challenge, the stigma, the sense of loss. Whether we are your first choice or your last chance, we believe that together we will make a difference. I'm your host, Randy Davis pastor as well as founder and executive director of A Better Life, Brianna's Hope. We're participant-driven, faith-based, compassion-filled support and recovery movement for those battling the battle with substance use disorder slash addiction. We want you to know we've got a very special guest with us today that's going to be able to tell us the story of his life of, of crime his life of addiction, his life in finding forgiveness, not just from above, but from those who loved him and cared for him and he cared for and loved as well. His name, Matt Pazarelli. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Randy. How are you? I am good, sir. It's good to have you with us. Let me give you folks a little biography on Matt. Uh, he's a former member of New York City's Colombo crime family. Yeah, that's right. Here it is. John, the son of Sonny Franzese, New York's last mafia boss, entered the family business as a teenager after his older brother, Michael, sat him down at a Chinese restaurant in Long Island and introduced him to their way of life. John Franzese Jr. would spend the next 15 years in the mob, but eventually saw his life fall apart due to alcohol and addiction. He spent the 1990s slumming the streets of New York City, begging for hits off crack pipes, sleeping in subway tunnels, and HIV positive from a dirty needle he jabbed into his arm. He got sober on October 9 of 2001, and in his quest to clean up his life, eventually became an FBI informant, testifying against his father in federal court in 2010. He entered witness protection and has lived in the Indianapolis area as Matt Pazarelli for the last 13-plus years. Listen to his story. Hear why he was willing to go public with it and his name. This is huge, folks. Is that pretty accurate, Matt, what I just had to say? I think as a general... Summing it up, yeah, I think that's really accurate. All right. In a nutshell, we've got it there. But we're going to get into some of the details here in just a few moments. And we're, again, we're thrilled to to share this time with you. Folks, we're not here to glamorize Matt's past, whether it's by the name of Matt Pazarelli or you go with his giving na- given name of John Frenzies Jr., uh, it's not something to glamorize. Crime isn't. Addiction isn't. 
This is bigger than Hollywood. It's my understanding that your dad, Sonny, had friendships with the likes of Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield, Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra, Jake LaMotta, known as the Raging Bull when it came to the boxing ring, and there's a movie out by that name, right? Uh, yes. And then there was a guy by the name of Rocky Graziano that he was pretty close with, it sounds like, as well. And he was a one-punch knockout artist as a middleweight and world champion for several years. So that's just a tiny bit of your background. That's a bit of the stories I got to hear about growing up uh, amongst many other people. And my dad used to talk about, uh, you know, he was a funny guy. Uh, He never forgot his neighborhood. So there were these people that might not have been famous, but he'd have whole stories about guys he grew up with in the neighborhood, just neighbors and their grandfathers and their fathers. And, you know, it it was just like that. He was really good at that stuff. Uh, So, Matt, what was his neighborhood? What was that area of New York City? Well, he's kind of still pretty revered there. From what I understand, a friend of mine told me uh, he goes to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, often still. Uh, and he says, anytime you mention your father's name, he said, everybody lights up and uh, they go crazy. It's like everyone still knows him, uh, like as if he was still there all the time. And uh, that that's Williamsburg Greenpoint, otherwise known as... Greenpoint, Williamsburg, or more on the Williamsburg side, I believe. Okay, and that's in the Brooklyn area? Yes, it's a northern, it's, it's a little northern Brooklyn, uh, uh, part of Brooklyn, uh, right before Manhattan. Okay, okay, haven't spent a lot of time there, but <laughs> I've certainly heard of each and every one of them. Okay, yeah. thank you for sharing that with us. Let's go back to those early years in your life. What was your home like? Not your home life yet, but your home, your house. Let me rephrase that. Uh, what kind of a place did you live in? Well, we lived in a, a very nice neighborhood. Uh, I think my parents were paying $11,000 in taxes in the 1970s. So I say that because that's, that's a lot of money today. And yes. they paid that then. And that was taxes, not house payment. Right, that was taxes and the school system. And, you know, you never would have known. Uh, uh, I never knew uh, from how we lived. We, we had a really well-manicured uh, uh, lawn, uh, lawn. We had a 40-foot pool with a, uh, a putting green in the backyard, a cabana. That was beautiful, a really nice deck, and uh, most of our neighbors had similar homes and stuff in the development we lived in called Hamilton uh, Hamilton Park. So the house that you lived in was much like the others there. You know, they each one had their own amenities and nice style and all. Yes, very much so. Yours didn't stick out necessarily. Well, not not necessarily, but there were some things that uh, would uh, kind of draw attention. draw attention to, and make it obvious we were Italian. There was a lot of marble <laughs> stuff of that sort. My uh, 
you know, in that ways, we, we had the whole front yard was marbled uh, with some grass around, and and even the tree area had marble stones built on other marble stones, and uh, we had a marble wall. It was the craziest wall. My brother threw a football to me once, and uh, I wanted to catch it so bad, I, I ran right into it in my head. I didn't get a stitch, but I, I probably needed one. Because uh, I didn't want to drop the ball, so I ran into the corner of the wall. Oh, Never my. forget it. Yeah, I was Mar- like seven years old. Marble doesn't have a lot of give to no, it. No, it doesn't. Does it? it makes you tough, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you tough. That's it knocks what, you down in a hurry. Right. That That's what they would have told me. Are you okay? Okay, good. It makes you tough. Was this your brother, Michael? Michael, yes. How much older? Well, Michael's nine years older than me. Okay. Um. I, for some reason, I always remember how old all my brothers and sisters were for me, so I always was able to figure out their age because I knew who was this many years yeah. older. Who? So how many siblings did you have, Matt? I, I had six brothers and sisters. Okay. And yeah. you were the youngest of Yo- the group? Youngest boy. Youngest boy. So you had younger sisters. Two younger sisters, yes. Okay. Okay. Uh did you recognize at an early age what your family was about? Or when did those first revelations come that maybe you guys are living in a lifestyle type that others around you are not? Um, I don't think I understood to the degree that it actually was or the reason why. I was aware that we had some privileges. I I didn't quite understand that, uh, why everybody didn't have what we had. I remember that being something inside me that I think on to myself, uh, why everyone didn't always have a new bicycle or or stuff. And um, that that was something that stuck with me for a long time. Uh, Yeah. there's a funny story there. One, I read in a, a biography about Elvis Presley. Uh, now, I know there's a lot of them. I don't remember which one, but I was very young. I was like 11 or 12 years old. And Elvis, in that biography, said something I had felt that no one else ever talked about. He said he never understood why so much good happened to him, why he had all this. And it was one of the times I identified from a place in my life that didn't have to do with me, my family, or how we were being raised. It was like my personal, intimate thought to me. And and the first person I ever related that I ever thought I could relate to about was Elvis. Okay. (laughs) Sounds crazy, but but it was the truth. That makes sense. Tell the folks what your dad was about, Sonny Franzese. Okay. Well, you know, initially he was my dad. And uh, to the day he died, as my dad, he was a great guy. He was a great dad when he was my dad. Um, But he was also, uh, you know, I always say who was going to show up, my dad or Sonny Franzese. And uh, he was an organized crime member who who was somebody I could say that, look, I I wish 
I was able to turn my life over to God like he did to that life. Because I, wow. he, he had no, my sister Lorraine always said it, he had no cognitive dissonance about the life he chose. Uh, he didn't complain about it, the things that came with it. Uh, and he was an organized crime guy. Sometimes I feel more than he was my dad, uh, than he was my sister's dad. I know my mother was very vocal that he was, he never knew how to be a husband. He was always Sonny Francis. I, I, I think that set into him all the time. He, uh, he was super well-known, super well-liked. Uh, you know, uh, by the time I, I knew that a lot of the stuff written about him was true, um, it wasn't hard to understand 30 or 50 guys that the FBI thought he killed or had said he probably killed. It wasn't that hard to see. Um, you could understand how that could come from him, yes? Yes, uh, I could. And because I could understand as I learned the way these things worked, because you wouldn't see it in him. But if he was given an order or business had to be taken care of, there was no cognitive dissidence. So you play under the same rules as him. And if you break them, you chose this life. You die. Um, he had no attachment to that. De I mean, he didn't detach from that principle. Um, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact. Okay. So how did your dad I don't know how else to ask it. First get into the business, first get into the mob. Uh, was that passed down from another generation, the involvement, or was he voluntold, or how did that work? Um, my dad told me he was 14 years old when he got uh, proposed to be a member of the Columbos, um, and that he was so young uh, at the time, I think it was Joe Maliocca or Joe Profaci. They were the two bosses. I forget who was who. Um, and Vito Genovese, uh, or the Genovese family at the time, uh, were the only ones that knew he was a good fellow. And they waited another two years or so for to tell everyone else. Uh, I know that he had to do work. Work meant kill someone in those days that... That's the way it was, and it still is to a great, to a great uh, extent um, these days. And uh, I know that's how he did. Um, so he was proposed, selected if at not, an early age. If not made a good fellow at fourteen, he said he was the youngest good fellow ever made a good fellow. Explain to our folks what good fellow stands for means when you get initiated um much like the masons when you become a final mason okay much like a sorority or a fraternity when you're finally a member does that initiation require taking someone out many times or does I, that have anything to do with it i don't think the, the two go together and if you haven't by then which i don't i don't know if that's the case for anybody, all I know is most good fellows had to kill someone first or are the next in line to have to kill the next time somebody 
somebody has to be killed, then they're the ones that do it for the family uh, before anyone else is asked uh, to prove that that's their thing. Yes, um, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a sign of allegiance and uh, getting involved. And once you're involved, you don't step away easily, as we'll hear from you after a bit. But okay. Uh, what were some of the benefits for you? I know you talked about the new bike. What were yeah. some of the benefits, the perks that you received or your family received as a result of being a part of the mafia, the mob? Well, I got a lot of things I wanted. Uh, I had wanted uh, that it seemed other people didn't have access to as much. We always had all kinds of televisions, uh, the newest stuff. Um, we didn't go away a lot, um, but we were able to pretty much do what little kids want to do uh, that you might not be able to do financially. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I saw it that way then. Looking back, is this is a reflection sure. to back then. I mean, I just lived my life. That you know? was natural to you, the norm for you. Right. Like, you know, if I wanted to have shoulder pads, you know, their football uniform's expensive. If I wanted real shoulder pads and a real helmet, I would get it, even when it, I wasn't playing on my school team, you know, like when that was over, right? I don't know how to explain it. No, you know, movies, no. Uh, we didn't have to go to stores and not order something or buy anything. So there was no no want for items. You got no. them. Correct. And I'm talking about before 13, 14 years old. And what is that time frame? Back in, what, the 50s? Or no. Are we talking 60s? I love you, Randy. <laughs> 1974, right. uh, I was 14. I was born in 1960. So oh, okay. between 1965, when I was somewhat con becoming aware of my being a kid, till I was about 15 or 16. All right. So you're younger than what I am. So that gives yeah. me a good okay. frame. Thank you. you. Go. Appreciate that. You. All right. No, no. Okay. I'm good with all of that. Yeah. So, uh, all right. What were some of the negatives that you experienced? Obviously, you've already mentioned your dad's commitment to work uh, versus being a father that he might have been. What were some of the other negatives of growing up in your life? Well, there was a lot of media attention. Uh, there was a big, uh, there was a big homicide case in 1965, and uh, let's just say that for the media that was available at those times, you can kind of morph it 30 years later to the John Gotti times and how much media he gets. Yes, because of the way media became. Well, at that time, there was nobody that got the media that my dad did, none. And you go and you live in a, in a, a school, uh, what is it called again, the school, uh, anyway, a certain school system, uh, and you're the only one where your father's, you know, in the newspapers and teachers and everyone, and there's some to an advantage, some teachers were nice to me about it. Some weren't. Kids, most kids uh, weren't, I would say. Uh, 
until I got older, <clears throat> it was hard because he was just my dad. And kids were saying, you know, I was hearing the FBI didn't like Italians and they were afraid of your dad because it was obvious we had a lot of privilege uh, wherever we went. He was known or if we like I, I went to the Beatles in 1965 at Shea Stadium. Not only that, I, I got to meet uh, who was the promoter. I, I forget the promoter. Not only did I meet him then, I met him like 20 years later or so after my dad got out of jail. We were in Epstein. Yeah, I, I think that's right. We met the promoter, and I wish my dad never— I, I was with my other brothers and sisters, the older ones. I wish he never took me. I was—all I remember, I was scared to death. They were screaming, people jumping on helicopters, police hitting them with— So so there were privileges, and there weren't, uh, because sure. I knew him as my dad. And, I, and people were saying, your dad's mafia, and we never were allowed to use that word. We, we never admitted there was a mafia. I never believed it. No one. Uh, I never heard it in my house. So, in part, just your nationality created issues, the prejudices y- yeah. toward, the, toward yes. the Italians, at least in that area. Yes. Were there uh, any others mm-hmm. around that you were aware of, uh, you know, other Italian families right there in the neighborhood? The- there were, but a lot of them were professionals, unbeknownst to me. It turns out there were a couple of other, and my dad was known as one of the, uh, one of the earliest wise guys to move. Wise guys are good fellows, uh, in our language. Like a wise guy is still a kid who talks back. A wise guy is somebody making a smart, but in the context we use it amongst ourselves, it's a good fellow. And he was one of the most popular, uh, one of the biggest to ever move to Long Island. Um, so, you know, all the Italians that lived in our neighborhood generally were professionals, lawyers, doctors, uh, businessmen, and just like everyone else. And uh, I remember my dad, we were sitting at a table once, and there was like uh, my dad and his friends, and he always sat at all kinds of tables, and there were these people, and everyone said, oh, I'm a doctor, I'm a professional doctor, I'm a professional lawyer, I'm a professional finance guy, and my dad turned around to me, I'm a professional too, I'm a professional hoodlum, <laughs> I'm a professional cr- criminal, because he didn't mind saying that, and everyone was laughing, so... Uh, these were some of the things that you'd get, but it, it would be hard for me pretty often at school and that stuff. was going to be a question. When it came around to telling fellow students what your dad did for a living, how did you respond? Well, at the time, it wasn't hard because he did have interest in the music business. We owned a body shop. Uh, there were other businesses, restaurants and stuff that he did own. So he was a business. Uh, he was man. a businessman. I mean, that's part of the deceptive. Legitimately so. That's part of what what we're supposed to do. We have a hidden life, but not to let others see, and and we do that by being uh, legitimate businessmen. Yeah. Posing as actually. Yeah. Okay, so you're at that young age, and. Uh, I think the word you used was proposed to be a part of the 
the big family, not the household family, right. the mob, the mafia. At that age, what kind of dream did you have? What what did you see yourself being in the future before you were told what you were going to be? Do you mean before I knew about the mob? Or, yes, yes, oh. yes. Well, I, I have a pretty good story about that. Good. One sure. day I was at McGinnis. I think it was my eighth birthday. And on my seventh, I don't remember, but it happened two years in a row. Somebody asked me what I wanted to be. And I used to like cops and robber movies. I liked the police. I said I wanted to be a policeman. And my father came over and he said, son, what do you want to be a policeman for? They arrest their family. Do you want to arrest your mother? And he doesn't say me. He calls my your mother. And I was, I was startled. I was like, no, I would never arrest mom. I, I guess he thought So he was mad. He was mad at me. He didn't want me to be a policeman. And in the following year, Bonnie and Clyde came out. <laughs> so, I, you know, over that year, I'm thinking, well, it can't be a policeman. You know, these criminals are pretty cool, too. So and actually, it's the first movie they ever let me see where there were women's breaths in it because we were very strict in my house and it was rated M. Remember, it used to have movie ratings M. It's the first movie they let me see, which might have influenced me liking the movie. I was like, I don't know, eight or nine. And uh, and um my father, somebody asked me what I wanted to be again, and I thought I was going to impress my father. I said, I want to be like Bonnie and Clyde. And he grabs me, so what the hell do you want to be like them for? They died in the end. What kind of brain are you got? You want to be like, so I don't know who I'm supposed to be. I'm trying to be somebody. Yeah, yeah. But I did a lot of, lot of mixed messages growing up in that sense. <laughs> what? What was it like then moving just a little beyond that six, seven, eight-year age? What was it like once you realized the expectations for your life? Um, you know, Randy, sometimes the expectations seem worth it in lieu of the benefits. Um, you know, you got to I, – I look – I get to spend a lot of time in quiet looking back, you know uh, – Sometime people will call it into the darkness. Uh, psychology will call it the subconscious. But I, uh, I look back and I think, um, I think that I forget that I was a nine-year-old kid that whose idol was his father, and all of a sudden he went to jail. We never talked about him being away. It was always like he was there, even though every night we'd wait six o'clock for his call. But I was a nine-year-old kid that went to school from that day on, uh, played sports. All my friends, very, very good. Everyone came to the games. Uh, I didn't have a father who came to my games. This guy, this was the guy that always comforted me, gave me confidence. I might have been a bit of a goofy kid, but I, uh, <clears throat> I seemed to have a lot of good qualities. And then he was gone. So... When you say this life, you know, you look at nine years of him being away and me going through high school and going through all this stuff where people don't like me. Then seventh and eighth grade, girls don't want to date me. I'm a mob guy. There are families, teachers telling people to stay away from me. And then all of a sudden finding some footing again in a different kind of crowd that didn't hate me, you know, didn't hate where I came from. 
And all of a sudden, my brother tells me something that all of a sudden makes sense. <clears throat> all of a sudden, I go from this semi-look-down-on kid to the richest kid in the school. Uh, all of a sudden, I can get not only girls and people into the hottest clubs on Long Island. Not only was I 16 with a junior license, but I drove one of the nicest cars from the first car I ever had. All of a sudden, I'm a hot spot. Is it hard for, uh, for a young kid who maybe I wasn't in touch with the pain of not having a father, maybe the resentment of what I went through those years, the anger at the FBI, the watch, you know, my mother and her troubles and, and not understanding them, but living through them. And then all of a sudden I'm offered this thing, you know, why wouldn't I say yes to it? It solved all my problems. Yes. All of a sudden I'm popular. All of a sudden everyone wanted to be me, including me. Got that. Including me. I think I read that was probably a Datsun 280Z. Yeah, I Is drove, that right? That was one of the cars I drove to school. <laughs> not Brand every, new, mind you. Yeah, not everybody drives a car like that to school, no. even comparatively today. No, okay. and I didn't like that car. I got a Datsun. Oh, yeah, I, I had a Datsun 280Z. Then I had a 280Z 2 plus 2, which Michael didn't want to drive anymore, so I took his. And I finished in school with a 450 SL. It was a, uh, a light red tan inside convertible. It was the most expensive Mercedes you could get. I drove that to school my senior year. <laughs> so, I, I mean, why these not? Are... Exactly. As you said a moment ago, why not? I want to get in in just a few moments. I want to get into what it was that Michael had to tell you. Uh, you alluded okay. to it. I mentioned it in the, you know, the early bio. But I just want to remind folks that our guest today is Matt Pazrelli, also known as John Franzese Jr., son of Sonny Franzese, mob boss. Uh, for several years there in the New York area, New York City area. Let me be more distinct with that. So you've given us a bunch of the lead up. You've told us what young life was like. What were you, about 14 when Michael gave you the story? Is that, I was us. I was 16. 16, okay. Uh, there how may did be that a, come down? There may be, a, remember, that chronologically, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty young at 62, but I... I did a lot of drinking and I did a lot of drugs and I took a lot of punches. So my they may not be exactly accurate, We're okay but they're, with that. the context is, is yes, pretty the good. Truth. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what was that moment like? Uh, yeah, he set you down at a restaurant, yes? Yes. And uh, told you the family story? Share a little he, of that with us. He shared, actually, it was more centered on, he told me that he became a good fellow. It was the night before. Um, and he sat me down and explained to me what that meant. I think at that time, me and Michael finally talked. Michael finally felt it important or that there was a need to tell me because he probably sensed that I was leaning towards saying, all right, enough of this, this, and we just say that there's, there's a mob. 
and dad's got to have something It was make-believe in a way up to that point, yeah, at like least I denial. Never got confirmation from the source. Okay. And it happened that night. And I, uh, you know, at first it was real interesting, and I was like, this is, this is a Francis. This is who we are. And then it hit me. It's almost like, good. Now all those people that did all those things to me in school and didn't like me and all of this, like, I'm glad I knew. I'm glad I knew. And, and then I, I realized a sense of power. I, I had no experience with it other than my brother telling me. But all of a sudden I felt a sense of power that I didn't have before. Like, now I got the okay. It's true. Yeah, that's who we are. And, and it began there with that attitude or with that energy to build from that day on. Because uh, I wasn't that type of a kid when my dad went to jail. I didn't like to fight. I didn't, I didn't like to get in trouble. I, I liked people. I would hold hands with my friends, you know, and, and the years went on and stuff. And, you know, I, I don't like to make excuses, but I have a sponsor uh, who helps me in my sobriety, who tries to remind me that I didn't have an easy life. Sometimes I'm so grateful I, I don't give myself the chance to realize I had a tough life. Yes. And then all of a sudden something's put in front of you <laughs> that makes it easier or doesn't fix anything, but it appears Sure to. helps the moment. Sure helps the moment. And I went with it. And I loved my brother. I mean, Michael was the greatest brother growing up. I mean, my, my all my brothers and sisters, it uh, who they are is is more important than uh, than it is me. Uh, they were all phenomenal brothers and sisters. That's tremendous. Uh, they really were, and I never had time for all of them. Uh, but uh, anyway, it says more about them than it does about me. But I, I went with it, and I spent night and day with Michael pretty much. Uh, let's, let's hold off on that next step, that time you spent with Michael, because we want to carry that into the next episode. Uh, we've got plenty more questions for you. We want to know what following him was like, what kind of mentorship he gave you if he became your surrogate hero in the place of your dad or just how that played in there. But uh, what you shared so far has certainly been enlightening, but we want to uh, make sure we get more of this because we've still got a big part of the journey to go. We're going to work your faith in there before we're done here with all of this. We want to hear about that. We want to hear about your addiction struggle. We want to keep the involvement of the family, how you were able to turn state's evidence, go into the witness protection program, and come out of it alive uh, because that could not have happened too many times. So, uh, and then we certainly want you to add anything to that you can. But, folks, we do want you to know our next episode will be a continuation of this. We look forward to your being with us, and we just, we're going to continue to dig into 
into John's story, Matt Pazarelli and uh, his family and all they were about and the way he's been able to rise above it and all that's been done. So join us again for episode 57 where you'll get your questions answered that I'm sure you're asking yourself. Hold on, stick with us, continue in the battle. God bless. Amen. <laughs>